go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning, um, even with the rain that you provided for us. Thank you for that, and just for an opportunity to meet early together to, to think on the best things, to turn our mind to the truth, and uh, to dive into your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to be men who are, are truly godly men that love our wives and our families and lead them well, um, that are serious about your truth and seek to apply it diligently to our lives. We pray this morning as we think about purity again, that you would help us to be men who have pure hearts and pure minds, um, that are constantly guarding our minds and, and hearts with the truth. And pray that this time would be sweet and edifying and glorifying to your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us, um, we've been looking at the issue of, of purity. Uh, this is part four of that. And um, we, we may finish today, we may not. We'll just get as far as we can. And, and um, that's what's nice about this. We, we just kind of get as far as we get, and then we cut it off and start again the next time. Um, but this is part of a larger series we're doing on just being a godly man. What does it mean to be a godly man? What does it mean to lead a family? Uh, what are the things that are crucial for us in those areas. And as you know, one of the crucial areas as a man is purity. That's important for women as well, but as men, I think uniquely, we deal with temptations in the area of, of sexual morality and things like that. And so I, I thought it'd be really important for us early in this series to begin with an, a detailed look at what the Bible says about being a godly man in the area of purity. So this is lesson four on that subject. I sent out an email yesterday. If you didn't get that, let me know. But I sent out the first three. Uh, so if you haven't heard those, you can go back and catch up. But we really laid the groundwork for this lesson. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the practical side of, of how do we actually fight the, the good fight in regards to purity. What, what do we practically do uh, to put off that sin and put on righteousness? But we've already seen the command for purity, we've seen the standard that God has for purity, and then last time, the battle for purity. And so that brings us up to walking in purity today. And so we're going to frame this around uh, three directives or commands, and under each of those, we'll look at several passages. So this will, rather than expositing one single passage, we'll be in several um, and <clears throat> the first directive we're going to look at is kill sin at all costs. If you want to walk in purity, you have to be committed to killing sin at all costs. Uh, some of you may have read The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. If you haven't, I encourage you to read that book. The Mortification of Sin is one of his more famous books, and it, it really is helpful, especially in this topic, on this topic. But he, he says something there that's become a, a famous a statement of his, Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Um, it will kill you if you don't kill sin. Be killing sin or it will kill you. And that's really the idea here is we have to, we have to kill sin at all costs. If we're going to do that, I, I kind of came up biblically with three requirements. If we're going to kill sin at all costs, and these are sort of three subpoints under that first heading, the first requirement is to get rid of every obstacle. If you want to kill sin, get rid of every obstacle. And to see this, we're going to look at a famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we see Jesus' words here. This will be a, most likely a familiar passage to you. And we'll just dissect it a little bit. On each of these passages, we, we won't 
be diving into them as deeply as we could, but rather weaving them together uh, to make a holistic picture when it comes to fighting sin in this area. So this is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, a very familiar passage. Um, I want to begin just with that that idea. The first concept in verse 27 is this this truth that Jesus is really correcting. Understand, he's not not changing the meaning of the Old Testament law when he says, you have heard it was said. Instead, he's helping them understand what's the true implication in the heart behind that law. The Pharisees, as you remember, had created their own system of, of how to interpret the law. And they had added to the law in many ways. And Jesus is correcting that interpretive system that the Pharisees have come up with. He says, this is what you have heard. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. That's true. He's he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. And so he says, but I say to you, and he's not saying that's not true, listen to this. He's saying here's here's the, the meaning behind that is that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's, he's taking that and expanding it to say God looks not only at our, our physical actions, but at, at the heart. And then he goes on to say, if, so if, if, if you want to stop this sin or kill this sin before it starts, you're going to have to do something. And he gives these illustrations that are really radical. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away. The idea here is if it makes you stumble as a present tense verb, the idea is this, this continual temptation. If your right eye is a continual temptation for you, tear it out and throw it away from you. <clears throat> because, he says, it's better to, to lose that part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought if I was, if I was saved, then I, I'm not in danger of, of going to hell. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, he's, he's bringing up this reality that, yes, of course, if you're truly a believer, then no, you're not going to lose your salvation. That's impossible. But if you are constantly giving in to sin and refusing to put off sin, you may very well reveal that you're not a believer at all. That you really, if you don't take sin seriously and you say, oh, yes, I love Jesus, but I live however I want and I'm not willing to cut off sin then, then you may very well not be a true believer. That's the idea here. It's better to lose that part of your body and cut off that sin than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he gives a second illustration which makes the same point. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away from you. So he, he's obviously not being literal here. And unfortunately, there have been some in church history that have taken this literally and actually cut off parts of their body. Uh, only to find that it didn't actually help with the battle with sin. That's not what he's talking about. Um, But rather, he's making an important point. He's saying if if there is a a temptation, if there's something in your life, and it's constantly causing you to trip up and stumble into sin, get rid of it. Cut it out. Cut it out of your... No matter how valuable that thing is 
to you. That's really the point. You think about it, if you were going to lose one of your body parts, um, the ones that you would want to preserve would probably be your, your eyes, right? You want, you want to see. And then your dominant hand. He says the right hand because most, most of the population is right-handed. So you'd want to keep your dominant hand and your, and your eyes. And, and his point is a value system. Say so even those things that are most prized, if it's causing you to sin, you cut it out and you throw it away. So some illustrations for us of things that, that, that may fit into this uh, example it would be like the Internet. The Internet's a great tool. It's a great resource. In fact, it's, if, if you have a job, you, you probably use it at least in some capacity to fulfill your duties. When you're in school, you can't make it through college now without using the Internet. It's a valuable tool, but we also know it's used for, for many wicked things, particularly in the area of sexual sin. And his point here, if we apply it to, to that idea, is that if, listen, yes, the Internet's a great tool, but if you can't use the Internet without falling into sin regularly, cut it out. Cut it out. That's going to create some complications for your life. Figure them out, but, but cut that out of your life. Now, now I'm not saying if, if you truly have to use the Internet for work that you can't use the Internet while you're at work or something like that, but at the very minimum, put some severe restrictions on your use of the Internet uh, to keep yourself from that sin. Another example, maybe it's a TV show. You, just, you love the humor in the show. You love the actors. You love the storyline. But there's, but there's regularly aspects of that show that, are, that draw you into sexual sin in your mind. Jesus would say, cut it out. It's not worth it. Cut it out. And maybe it's a group of friends. You really like hanging out with these guys. They're fun. You enjoy them. But they're constantly talking about sexual things, constantly using sexual innuendo and, and double entendres, all these things that are turning your mind constantly to sexual sin. Uh, Jesus would say, find new friends. Cut it out. And so that, that's the idea here, is get radical in, in your life if there are things. And this obviously applies to other types of sin as well, but particularly in the area of sexual sin, um, we can't be lazy or unwilling to take sin as seriously as God does. If it's as serious as the, the illustration of cutting out your right eye and your right hand, then certainly lesser things um, ought to be, we ought to be willing to cut them out of our life. As we think about that, there's an illustration from the Scriptures that I want us to turn our attention to. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I've been captured by this story it hit me again in, in my Bible read-through this year when I went through 1 Samuel. Uh, this contrast that we have between Saul, King Saul, first king of Israel, and Samuel, the last prophet, not prophet, but the last judge of, of Israel, who was also a, a prophet. Remember, you have this godly man in Samuel that from childhood has been dedicated to the Lord and, and lives wholeheartedly for the Lord. Then you have Saul. Um, who this is first Samuel chapter fifteen you have Saul, who is uh, unfortunately not a godly man. He looks the part physically on the outside he looks exactly like what you 'd want as a king, but unfortunately, his heart is not dedicated to the Lord, and that comes out that comes to a head. You can sort of see this coming throughout the story of saul 's life, but it comes to a head with this act that happens in first Samuel chapter fifteen now. This, this is quite a bit of text, but uh, we're going to read the bulk of the, <clears throat> the chapter here because this story unfolds. And as we read it, 
I want you to, to be thinking in your mind of the contrast between what does Samuel do in response to what God says and what does Saul do in response to what God says. And then I want us to talk about some of the things we see in this passage. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So, just quickly, here's the command. God's told Samuel to tell Saul that, that, that God desires to punish the Amalekites, and, and particularly the, the king Amalek, uh, for the way they've treated the Israelites, and they're to totally destroy them, including the king himself. That's the command. Verse 4. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Uh, Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now, just quickly before we move on, what was God's command? Kill them, kill them all. Kill them all. Mm-hmm. All the way down to, to the, the animals. What did Saul do? He only killed the bad stuff. Yeah. He kept, kept the good stuff for himself. Yeah. So, so how do you think Saul justified this in his mind? How, how might you spin this if you're Saul? These are my, good. These are my rewards for doing this. Okay, so I earn, I, I'm taking these as reward. What else? What, what else might you spin justifying that action? Do you want to waste something good maybe? Like, hey, these are really good. We can use them. Why would we do this? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's not waste the good. Um what else? What else? How else might he pacify his conscience? Well, it rolls right with Genesis 3. You know, which, uh, you just end up doing what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He heard the command, but it's like you're, you have some sense in you about... He, people would say he did the common sense thing. Mm-hmm. It's, like it's not really... But that's still not meeting what he's asked to do. Right. Yeah. I, I know best. Yeah. He's trusting his own... Evaluation of God's command, um, and so he you, he could say, "Well, I, wait a minute, I I did go, I went down there, we went to war, we won the war, uh, you know that, and 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 we kept, yeah, we kept some of the things, but I mean, I I did obey." You could, you could see how he might uh, rationalize this. We're going to see how he rationalizes Sorry, it here in a moment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he probably right. didn't mean that. that right. Um. But you see, you can see how, and we, we do this, we, we have the command, and then we, we can justify sort of a half-hearted obedience as if that is what God desires. Uh, let's see how, how the story continues to unfold. Let's look at verse 10. 
Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me, and he's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. So what's his excuse for keeping the animals? We did it. We did it for God. Yeah, we did this for God. We we kept these for for Him. Um, then he goes on. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night." And he said to him, "Speak." Samuel said, "Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, and you were made the head of the tribes, that you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission?" and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, listen to this, this is, this is powerful. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is at the sin is as the sin of divination and insubordination as, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So harsh, I mean, right at it. We, we see the justification of Saul, right? He says, wait, wait a minute. He actually says, I did obey the Lord. He says those words, I, I did. I, I went, we killed everybody. I kept the king. Um, you know, and the people, that's how he turned that, that the people took some of the best, you know, for the Lord. Um, you can see how he's spinning this, but that's not how God takes it. We hear God's voice through Samuel. And I love that, that convicting statement that has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. <clears throat> now, Let's continue on. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Saul turned to go, Samuel turned to go. Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not, will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. 
Now this 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 is this is where it gets even better. Then Samuel said, "Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites." And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, "Surely the bitterness of death is past." But Samuel said, "As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women." And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Man, I, I, I love that passage. There's this contrast between Samuel, a prophet and judge, who is wholeheartedly obeying God, and then, of course, sadly, Saul, who is only, at best, half-heartedly obeying. But listen to how, what, are, what, what stuck out to you before I give you my assessment? What, what were the, as you looked at that contrast between Samuel and Saul, what are some of the things that stuck out to you? <clears throat> Rationalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rationalizing sin. Explanation of why he's doing what he's doing because he says as a sword, your sword being one choke child, so also your mother, etc. Et mm-hmm. Yeah. It gets to kind of like the passage that we read in the New Testament. It gets to the heart of things versus oh. versus just the the letter of things. Yeah. So, even if Saul thought he was right, which he yeah. may not have, um, Samuel pulls it back and says it's it's not about the act itself. It's, mm-hmm. it's about actually obeying the voice of the Lord, and not about not about the sacrifice, not about you know sacrifices are good, right? Sacrifices to God are not bad, but it's about actually following what the Lord says. Mm. Yeah. Sacrifice is actually commanded by God at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And when God says, wait a minute, that's not... I, I, I value obedience over your sacrifices. I think there's a seriousness in it, like the... Because it says in the God's <coughs> for rebellion, sin of rebellion. God's mm. view of it is it's rebellion. Mm. And you take that and look at the that New Testament passage and you have to ask yourself, you know, it's just, this is about rebellion as well. Mm. Yeah. To God. And I just don't think that I take the whole counsel of God when I in my in my even in myself. And I think that's even in now in life is what are the areas that I'm doing that? Now? Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's the application for us is shining that light on it. In what ways am I rationalizing sin like Saul and how can I be more obedient in the and wholeheartedly as Samuel was. I you know Samuel was not a warrior, he was he was a, a prophet and he was a, a judge of of Israel, a priest. But but there at the end, what does he do? He does what Saul was unwilling to do and finishes carrying out the command of the Lord by. It says he hewed Agag to pieces. He grabbed a sword and he chopped him to pieces. You can almost see that this righteous indignation in his heart over what Saul has done and this zeal for the Lord, a fear of the Lord, as he literally puts this man to death in, in, in a harsh fashion um, out of an overflow of obedience to the Lord. I just, as I thought about that and this idea of killing sin at all costs, <clears throat> I just couldn't help but put the two together that if, if Saul or Samuel uh, took the word of the Lord that seriously, 
that he was willing to, to bring it to the point of putting this man to death in, in that way, as, as he should have done, it was commanded of the Lord. How can we not be willing to cut out things in our life that are sinful and or that are, are constant temptations towards sin that, that, that are tripping us up? Um, we, we far too often pacify our conscience with half-hearted attempts at obedience as if that is what God desires instead of really giving a sober evaluation of our thoughts and our deeds to say, is this, am I really wholeheartedly devoted to what God says or am I taking the spirit of the command and kind of molding it to my liking and then pacifying myself uh, as if I've obeyed? We have to be careful to cut out those things in our life. So I would just put the question to you to, to ponder in your own head. What... What are a, the sins, first of all, that, that perhaps you most easily justify that you need to go back and, and put them to death? And then one step removed from that, what are those things that are continually, regularly tempting for you that maybe you're just sort of letting stay around uh, because, yeah, and I know that sometimes I, that happens, but, you know, I'm working on it and, and I don't really need to go that far to get rid of that because of this, that, and the other. I mean... What are the things that, if you're really honest, you're justifying that you know, I just need to cut that out. I just need to get that out of my life. Um, and then take the action, like Samuel, to rid yourself of those things. Yeah. Um, you can't do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and it says that God will have to be on the handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because without him, you know, you're asking him to help you with that, you're doing it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's coming. That's actually my second Sorry. point. No, you're good. <laughs> but you're on the right track. You're on the same, we're, in the, we're thinking the same way. Um, <laughs> we're on the same trail. Um, so that's the first requirement is to, to remove all obstacles. The second requirement, if we're going to kill sin at all costs, is to give your maximum effort. Give your maximum effort. To, to do this, to see this, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And this is a, a very helpful, short passage on the issue of sanctification and how, how, it, how does this process work whereby we become progressively more holy. That's what sanctification is. It's to become more holy, to be made holy. How does that work in our daily lives? Well, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, helps us with this. This is a great passage, very succinct, and explains this issue of sanctification. Let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 13. He says, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we're going to look at this. He makes two basic ideas, two truths we see in this passage. The first one's in verse 12, which focuses on our effort. Sanctification demands your maximum effort and my maximum effort. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, work out. This is the command. Work out your salvation. Uh, 
He's not saying, when he says that, the Bible talks about our salvation in, in different tenses. Like, you have been saved, past tense. You are being saved, present tense. And you will be saved, future tense. But what that means is not that the Bible is saying is your salvation is constantly up in the air uh, or in flux. It's actually a way of talking about sanctification. Salvation or justification, where we are justified and made right with God, that's past tense. You have been saved. Sanctification is that you are being saved. That's the present tense. That is, God is progressively making you holy. And then glorification is that future tense that you will be saved. God, God will fully accomplish your salvation at, uh, at glorification, bringing you to himself. So here when he says work out your salvation in the present tense, um, he's not saying save yourself. He's saying as those who are saved, be, pursue holiness, be sanctified. And again, it, this is a command. Work out your salvation. In fact, there's, there's some, in the Greek, there's this emphasis on that word your so that we could say it as work out your own salvation, as give you personally, give your maximum effort towards holiness. That's, that's the idea. Work it out. <clears throat> it's, a, it's, a, it's a 24-7, day in and day out activity that we're to be doing of giving our effort towards pro- progress in the faith and progress in holiness. And he describes the attitude that we're to have as we do this. He says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, in reference to our, our attitude towards God. Fear, of course, is not, not fear in the sense of being, being afraid like watching a scary movie and being terrified, but fear in the sense of reverence and awe for God, a, a special respect for God that he's to have because of his holiness and his transcendence, that we are to think of God in that way. Really, back to Saul and Samuel, that, that was the missing piece for Saul and the piece that, that was there for Samuel was this true fear for God. So that when God spoke and said, this is what I want you to do, Saul heard that and because he didn't fear God in the way he should, he, he modified it. Samuel heard that and said, because I fear God, I need to do it to the letter. That's the idea here. Work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling, with that right reverence for God where you tremble before him. But, but secondly, now getting to the point that, that you were making a moment ago, and this is, this is the, really the third requirement, but it's also the second part of this text. The third requirement is rely on God for strength. Rely on God for strength. Because it says here in verse 13 that sanctification is accomplished by God alone. We are to give our maximum effort. You, you cannot lay on the couch spiritually and be a couch potato, and do nothing, and just say, okay, God, sanctify me. It, you know, he doesn't just zap us with a bolt of holiness, right? Um, but we are to give our maximum effort, but at the same time, you can give your effort all day long, and if God is not at work in you, it's not going to happen. And so there is a balance to that, to that coin. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 13. He says, um, oh, hang on, I'll turn pages here. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this, this verse. We could spend the rest of our time just talking on this. But notice it says God is at work in you. If you're a Christian, this is the good news of, of, of the gospel. That God not only saves us, redeems us, but he is actively, day in and day out, at work in you. Think about that. God's at work in you. 
to make you into what he commands you to be. <laughs> Praise God for that, right? He, he not only commands it and says, well, he doesn't say, here, do this and go figure it out. He says, here's how I want you to live. And guess what? I'm going to be in you, empowering you to live this way. And Paul even parses this out to describe how exactly is God at work in us. He, he describes it in two different ways. He says, first of all, both to will and to work. To will is that first idea. God's at work in you at first to give us the internal desire to obey. That will to get up, read the word, to do what God says. Where does that come from? Is that just because you're such a great guy? No. It's because God is stirring that up. To whatever level you have a genuine desire to serve and love God, it's because God is at work in you. Isn't that amazing? He, he doesn't just help us in the sense of strengthening us. That's coming next. He, he gives us even the desire. Those, he fans into flame those desires to do the right thing. That's why at times you, ha, you have that strong sense of conviction that I, I want to live for the Lord and I, I want to do that. I want to put off sin and I want to put on righteousness. Why? Because God's at work in you. But not only to give you the desire. Secondly, he says, also to work, both to will and to work. So now we're on to actual actions. He's giving us the, the internal piece of desiring this, but he's also in us to cause us to produce the good works that he prepared beforehand, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, that when God saved us, he, he saved us unto good works, which he pre prepared beforehand uh, for us to, that we might walk in them. So that the strength that you need, the reason you can have any confidence when you put forth your maximum effort that it's going to do anything is because God's at work in you. That's why we put forth our effort. And it's true, there is this, when it comes to sanctification, there is this synergistic relationship where we are putting forth our maximum effort, but it's God who is providing the desire and the ability. And so any growth that actually comes as you make steps in holiness, where does the glory for that go? Right? It's up. It's to the Lord. Um, but there, there are, we, can't, we can get off balance here on, on either side, or we can be, it's all about me, and I just got to pull up my bootstraps and do this. That, that's unbiblical. We can also fall on the other side and say, you know, I just kind of hang out, and the Lord just does it. We just get holy, you know. Um, that, that's also unbiblical. The Bible says, get up, and you run hard for the Lord, as hard as you can. But God is the one giving you the desire to do that, and he's the one giving you the strength to do that, and he's the one that's going to cause that to bear good fruit. And so that's the biblical balance of how sanctification takes place. And notice he ends that in verse 13 with the words, for his good pleasure. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This pleases the Lord. And this is a whole other topic, but I do think I'll just touch on it here for a moment. A lot of Christians... Um, they go to extremes in their pursuit of holiness and because they see so much sin still in their life, which all of us still have, that they, they just get this idea that God's never pleased with them, right? It's never enough. That God's always just ready to just zap them. And, and that's not true. God, God is pleased with, his, with us through Christ, right? Because we are, we are saved, we're His children. He sees us through the lens of Christ. And He's also producing within us the things that please Him. That's, that's the idea here. He does this work of producing sanctification in us 
because it pleases Him to do so. It pleases Him for us to be holy, and it pleases Him to, to be part of this process by which we're made holy. John Owens said, said this, he says, The Holy Spirit is the only sufficient means for the work of mortification, of, of killing sin. All other ways are futile without Him. In vain do men seek other remedies. Vows, fastings, and other efforts of spiritual discipline mean little if the Holy Spirit is not present. And that, that's the balance right there. Is, uh, we can never put our, our hope for sanctification in some outward external thing that we do. Right? Instead, our hope is in God alone working within us. And so we get out of bed every morning and we put one foot in front of the other in, the, in pursuit of sanctification, knowing all the while it's God who's at work in me. And so we, we think of things like Philippians 1.6 where, where Paul says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not given up on us. Yeah, we have a long way to go. When we look at the gap left between where we are and where the holiness of Christ is, we have a long way to go. But God's not left us, and He is continually working within us. And so we, to me, that, that motivates me then to give my maximum effort. It's because I know, hey, God's the one giving me that desire, and God's the one that's going to give me the ability to do it and cause it to bear fruit. And that's intended by, by God. Exactly. When you come across people or yourself like, good enough for, for God? And the answer is no. No, you're, you're not. not. <laughs> when you say you're not good enough, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're doing works. And that ain't going to work. Yeah, you're thinking through it through a, lurks, a works-based lens. And I, I think that when a person recognizes they're not good enough, that's actually the first part of the gospel we have if a, if a person doesn't recognize that their sin and that they're not good enough then we're going to work first to help them see that so that we can show them their need for the remedy right but that's right none of us are, are good enough that's the whole point is that christ is good enough and he lived in our our place i noticed lately um i spent time in psalms on weekends and right now i was in 119 but i was i didn't count them but i Make me walk in your way, make me know your word. It was always about that attitude of what you're saying in Philippians. It was to make me. He, he had the idea that God in him had to, to start it, had to produce it first in his desire. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's crucial for us to, to keep in mind, to think about that. I mean, how does that, let's just talk about that for a second. How does that encourage you to think about? both of those facets that God's providing the will, the desire towards holiness, and God is providing the actual work itself, the strength to do what he commands. What well, how does that encourage you as you think about that? <clears throat> it allows me to understand that only trust in the Lord is going to work. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. Yeah. It has to be the Lord working within me. That's right. I think it's just encouragement that it's possible to grow in Christ's likeness, right? Yeah. And that's pleasing to Him. That's mm-hmm. And God's attributes is grace. That He gives us the grace that not only did He save us, but He, he helps us do this work of sanctification. Hmm. And he's, a, he, he's even sovereign over that aspect, over yeah. every aspect. And that's great. 
Hey, he doesn't leave us, right? He's he's with us. I think sometimes guys, since we're on the topic of purity, guys, I've seen guys get really beaten down and discouraged, especially in this area, as if because they've struggled with it for a long time, they get to a point where they just sort of sit in this settled state of, that's just how it's going to be. You know, I, I know it's not right to look at porn. I know it's not right to do this. I know it's not right to do that. But, you know, I try and I try. And they, they have this sort of defeatist mentality. But this passage won't let us get there, right? Because it reminds us that, that God not only commands purity, but then comes alongside and gives the desire and the ability to, to fight and win. We, we, we will never be as pure as Christ was in this life until he glorifies us, but you can kill <clears throat> outward manifestations of those sins, such as looking at porn and things like that. You are not trapped in those sins with no hope of getting out, right? And I think whether, you know, if you're here and you struggle with that, you need to hear that. But also, as a man, you're going to encounter other men, uh, if, you, if you don't deal with that, who do. And to be able to come alongside and say, no, that's, that's, not, the, that's not a biblical mentality, that sort of give up mentality that, that you know, just the way it is. Honest, sometimes that can be a cop-out, to be honest. It's a way to stay in that sin and sort of feel justified in it. Um, but some guys just legitimately are beaten down and just think, man, I, I don't know. Just a reminder, no, 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 God is at work in you, and, and, and you can, by his grace, walk in that. Let me come alongside and help. Is the uh, answer to the balance of our part and his part, from our part, the prayer, the reading the word, the studying his scripture, doing that, going full forward to the best we can on that, and then that is that what God uses to help us be and meditate and be able to do the thing that we need to be sanctified in? Yes, that's a, a huge part of it, as well as um, where, where I want to spend time now is, is with that put off, put on. How does that, that we've talked about in Colossians, how does that play into this realm of purity? Because I think it's, yes, we, we dedicate ourselves to the things that God's, the means that God says He uses to sanctify. So the Spirit is at work in us, but He uses means. And that's why you can't just lay on the couch and do nothing. He uses the means of, of the Word of God primarily, of prayer, and of the church and His people corporately. So we need to be involved in all of those means that God says He uses, and then God uses those means in us. But you cut yourself off from the Word, uh, you're, you're not going to grow, um, because that, that is the, the means that God uses to grow us. Uh, that's why sometimes you can meet Christians who have been in churches maybe where the Word was not taught as it should be, and they're starving. Why are they starving? Um, because they, they were cut off from the means that God uses uh, to sanctify us. So I just want to introduce the idea. We don't have time to fully flesh out this second directive, but I want to get you thinking about it, and we'll pick up with it next time as well. But So the first directive was you've got to, you've got to kill sin at all costs, and... We, we got recognized now that requires our maximum effort and it also is, is possible because God's at work in us. But the second directive, directive number two, is to put on the new man. Put on the new man. And this is sort of the, the how that, that Alejandro was asking about. This is, okay, I know I need to give my maximum effort. What does that look like? What do I do? Um, and so we, we've, we've introduced this idea in Colossians um, but some of you have even come to our church since I went through this, and so it may be, may be new to you. But when the Scriptures talk about our 
effort in sanctification. We have, we have a passage in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3. We put those together, and it gives us this understanding that there's really a, a three-step process that defines how we battle sin. And here's the process. It's first, I'm just putting in, in Cliff Notes version, put off, step one, renew your mind, step two, and put on, step three. Put off, put off sin, renew your mind with truth, put on righteousness. That over and over again, that's the pattern that we see. Um, and, and we're going to look at that here in Ephesians 4. And really, as you think about that, putting off sin, renewing your mind, and putting on righteousness, that's what repentance actually is. Like A true, true repentance is not just a, you know, I'm sorry, I'll do better. But true repentance leads to actually seeing the sin and replacing that, doing an about face where I was walking this way and now I'm walking that way. So that's really what we're talking about is how do we pursue genuine repentance. And so I want to read this for you in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 20. Paul says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That's step one. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's step two. And put on the new self. Step three. Which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Lay aside the old self. Verse 22. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 23. And put on the new self, verse 24. Now, what is that old self that we're talking about? Well, <clears throat> I think it is important to understand that when you come to know Christ, you have a new nature, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, new creature. Behold, <clears throat> old things have gone, new things have come. So we have a new nature when we're in Christ. But we still have a sinful flesh, the Bible says. We see that in, in Romans chapter 7, other places, where we have this, this internal battle with the flesh. The flesh is not just your, your body, but it's that part of you that's yet to be redeemed. That, that, that part of you that when you see an external temptation has an initial, I, I want to do that. Right? What, what is that about? That's your flesh. That's a part of you that's yet to be redeemed. So you now have a new nature that's in submission to Christ and your flesh, and the two are going like this throughout the day, right? And you're having to exercise your new nature to battle against that flesh. So that lay aside the old self. It, your, your, your old nature is already dead and gone. That's dead at, at justification. But sort of the there's this piece of that that remains in your flesh that still desires the old way the old way that the old nature used to be. And so when we're laying aside, he's saying lay aside all of those old practices, those evil desires that are part of who you used to be, that's what we're laying aside. So as those temptations rear their ugly head, we're to put them off. And the Greek word here is the same word for taking off a, like a jacket or a piece of clothing and throwing it away. Take it off and chunk it from you. We're doing that all day long every time that uh, a temptation comes. And um, some of you guys may have heard of Jay Adams. Anybody ever heard the name Jay Adams? Jay Adams is a famous uh, biblical counselor. He's, he's passed away now, but a lot of his resources are, uh, are been, have been foundational in sort of the biblical counseling movement. 
And he talks about some very helpful things. One thing he talks about is that the reason that our battle with sin is so difficult is because of really, initially, a good thing that God gave us, which is the ability to form habits. God gave us this unique ability as human beings to form habits, which is meant to be a good thing. For example, you have a lot of habits that help you out all day long so that you don't have to think about, you don't have to use mental energy to do several things. For instance, you, put, you got dressed this morning with very little mental effort, right? Because you get dressed all the time. If I was to ask you, which shoe do you put on first? I think you'd probably have to think about it, right? Because you just put your shoes on every day and you just put them on. But I guarantee you, if you start watching, you do it the same way every time. What about your shirt? Which arm do you put through first? I thought about it this morning when I put mine on because I knew I was, I was like, that's my right arm. Your pants. You start to think about, I just do all this, right? I used to have, when I was three and four learning, I had to think about it, but now I just do it. That's good. God gives you these habits. You do them instinctively. Some of you, it's your commute home from work. You, you look up and you're home and you're like, I don't remember driving. You know, that's, that's a scary feeling. Um, but here's the thing. Just like with, we've corrupt everything else, we corrupt this, this habit-making ability, and we make sinful habits as well to where we do certain sinful things just without we just we've gotten in the habit of when this temptation or stimulus is presented I do that and we, we do it over and over again to the point that now you hear some people say you know I was born this way that's a popular thing especially with with uh, homosexuality things like that and the idea is that you have created such you have given into that sin for such a long time perhaps even at a very young age for so long that it, it, it does literally feel like this is just how I am. But, it's, but it goes back to this creating these sinful habits. So if we're going to progress in holiness then, we have to understand that God's standard is not simply stopping a sinful habit. It's replacing that sinful habit with a righteous one. Let me say that again. It's not just stopping the sinful habit. It's replacing that sinful habit with a righteous habit. Because the temptations and the stimulus that you've always reacted to, those are not going to go away in this sinful world. You're going to keep encountering the same temptations, the same filthy billboards, the same filthy commercials, the same whatever, uh, that are going to be the external temptation to think or act a certain way. That's not going away. What's got to change then is my response to those temptations. I've got, to, I've got to recognize the sinful habit to put off and, and then the, recognize the new habit to put on. So it's not just enough to say, stop it. You know, just, just stop it. Stop doing that. Stop it. That, that's not enough. That, that's actually just step one. Put off. Lay it aside. You do have to stop it, but it doesn't stop at stop it. Let me show you an example um, from Ephesians chapter 4. Turn, if, you, if, you, if you've moved on from there turn back but in Ephesians chapter 4 he gives um, he, he Paul gives us some examples I love this one in verse 25 he says therefore let's put this into practice laying aside falsehood speak truth each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another you see this this is this is what he's saying if you're a liar if lying is the sin you struggle with God's standard for you is not just to stop lying it's to become a truth teller, a person who is characterized by truth. That's what he says. He says, lay aside falsehood. That is, that's the stop it. Stop lying. But then he says, speak truth, each one of you with your neighbor, 
That is, fill your mouth with truth. So the, the, the biblical standard is not just to stop lying. It's to become a truth teller. I, I really like the one on stealing in verse 28. He gives another example. He who steals must steal no longer. That is, put it off. That's stop it. But then he goes on and says, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with those who are in need. You see what he does there? He says the standard for you, if, you're, if your sin struggles have been stealing, when you come to Christ, it's put off stealing, stop it, then get a job, work hard, and give stuff away. Which chapter is that? This is a, it's Ephesians chapter 4, and that's verse 28. But you see how radically different that is. He's saying, I want you to not only replace, get rid of your old habit of stealing, I want you to replace that habit with being generous, giving away your own stuff to be a blessing to other people. The same thing with purity. The, the standard, God's standard, we'll, we'll finish with this, we'll pick up here next time, but God's standard for purity is not simply that we stop doing certain things. That's only the first step. God doesn't want you just to not be impure. He wants you to be characterized by purity, to be a, a man whose mind, mouth, and actions are, are, are flowing purity in the way you speak, think, and act. And so um, I've got a lot more to say on that. That's where we'll pick up next time. But that's the basic answer to the, the how do I give my maximum effort? You're putting off, renewing your mind, putting on. We're going to dive into that process a lot. I've got a lot of stuff in my notes on that. We're going to basically take what I taught in Colossians 3 on that issue and apply it real specifically to the area of purity and how does that look. But as far as takeaways for, for what to think on between now and next time, I think we really all need to do some heart work and ask ourselves, are there things that I've been allowing, that I've been justifying in my life, that are constant sources of temptation that I, could, that I, could, I truly could cut out and need to cut out? And are there sin patterns that I've, I've been sort of kind of halfway doing what I know God wants and, and, and seeing that in my mind as full obedience when really it's not? So it's a call to war for us to, to, to go to, to battle with our, our temptation towards all sin, but it's particularly sexual sin. Well, let's pray and then we can stay. If you've got questions or want to talk more, I'm happy to do that. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word for its clarity, uh, for its helpfulness in these things. Thank you that you don't simply just give us a list of commands and, and, and have us figure that out on our own as if we could do that. Instead, you, you, you empower us by the Holy Spirit through your word to, to follow you more faithfully. And you, you outline in the scriptures uh, exactly how we can go about growing in holiness. Father, I pray you would birth within us a, a deep desire to be truly godly men who love you, who pursue you and pursue holiness and, and purity. And I pray that North Lake Bible Church would be a place where, where men are leading their families and, and loving their, their, their wives and their kids as godly men and setting an example of what it is to follow Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.